definitely not a set it and forget it tool. This is a program, it's ongoing. There isn't a beginning and end. It's gonna go for as long as your team, assets, company exists. So it's something that does have to be lovingly cared for day-to-day -day basis. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we are here with not one but two guests. Very lucky to have Nada Al-Nakib and Joanna Perez here. We've got Nada from DoorDash, Head of Design and Research Operations. We've got Joanna from Netflix, Senior Taxonomy Strategist, Digital Archivist, and, and Studio Production. And we're going to be talking about insights, repositories, and you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Hello. Hello, hello. Got JH here, too. Yeah, I feel like in a recent episode, I, I had a hot take that insight repositories are going to make some big leaps forward this year. So maybe we'll figure it out on this podcast together. Yeah, let's figure it out. They keep coming up more and more. And they will. It's a hot topic for sure. Yeah. And and on that note, you've been thinking about insights repositories for a bit, right? Yeah, probably now since what, 2018, 2019. Joanna and I got to work together more closely in the time period between, uh, I think, 2019 or 2020. I, I don't remember. I feel like it's with the pandemic, that's been like years now. <laughs> uh but yeah, Joanna and I worked together in the research operations function over at Meta or Facebook. And we specifically focused on the repository space and finding the right tool and the right process to archive research reports. And there is where I learned a whole lot from Joanna about taxonomy, about you know how system architectures and metadata works. And she was our awesome librarian that we brought on after I put together some main business requirements to have a repository. And then she came in and we fleshed all those together and launched a really solid tool there for researchers to use. Joanna, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was super excited to come on. Like the whole team was just awesome and amazing. And as someone that's been doing this for quite some time and the reason we're all here, you know, obviously I'm not just biased. I, I definitely think that repositories are are wonderful and, and great for everyone. But this particular experience was just really great and awesome. And, and we were able to move really quickly and build something that, that I think our users were happy to have. And we had so much support that it was amazing. But yes, it, it's, I am a librarian and I will be the first person to say everybody needs a centralized repos repository. It's something that public libraries have been doing for decades now. <laughs> so it is nothing new. Um, but it suits the needs for everyone, whether you're just a small team within a larger org that they just need it for a specific purpose or a museum or a gaming company or Netflix or Facebook or Amazon. Everyone needs one. Yeah. So so I'm actually curious, like, you know, why is that? Because I think on the surface, it seems somewhat obvious, right? Of We did all this work to learn things. This is valuable information. Let's make it cataloged and accessible for people so we don't have to go do that work again the next time questions here come up. But there is like a little bit of a probably a tough conflict, right, where some things you learn are much more like evergreen or like 
this is a core truth about this user and, and how they feel or, or how they experience things. And then other things are going to be very like much more fleeting of like, this is feedback on this screen, but we redesigned it three months later. So it's like not really applicable anymore. Like what, what is like the why of how it becomes valuable for, for a team? I mean, I can talk to you about the most recent example here, you know, at DoorDash, you know, we're fairly a smaller team. There's about 14 researchers or so. And we grew so much over just the past year. I think it started out with a few researchers. Now we're at 14. We plan to get bigger and bigger over the next few months. And, you know, when you start out such a small team, yeah, it might not seem like it's necessary because, you know, you always go to that one person or two people and, and you ask about, hey, have we done research about this or that or where can we find it? But as your team grows and scales, you need to think about what research have we done? Who knows, right? Like if people mm -hmm. love the company or like the more people that join, they want to know about what have we learned about our products so far and how can I come in and make direct impact and past impact. So you know, having a repository, it's, it's so important because you can see what's been done. You can see how it's impacted the product directly or how it didn't. And you can you know, as somebody new joining the company or somebody that's been here a while, you can actually make that decision of, okay, we have research that's valuable. You know, I, I can do more research or I can decide not to. I can use what the data that already lives out there and, and share it with, with my product team or with my designers or engineers. So there's so much value added, whether you start small or, or you start big. I mean, I, I definitely recommend that you do this right away when your team is small. So you get this right for the future. But Joanna, you know a lot about that space there and it's so important to you too. And I think like something to keep in mind is obviously you want to start at the beginning. That's the ideal place to start. That isn't always the case. We wish we could start right at the beginning. We don't have time machines. We can't go backwards. So, you know, you have to start where you are. However, one thing like to think about, like, you know, you mentioned insights that may be fleeting, that they may be like a quick one-off use case. To remember, it is good to just archive or add everything to the repository, but you can also bake into that a life cycle for maybe there's those assets that you know are going to be utilized right away, but you don't know the value of them today. Maybe you only see the value in that small lens of how you're using it today. If you create like a life cycle for your data and it moves maybe to like a cold or dark storage. So it's there just in case. And for an example, if you work for a, a gaming company, you may create a game, you knock it out, you have those research insights. And let's say they go back and remaster that game 20 years later. You have that data, you have those insights, you have original concepts in your cold storage and you can just pull it out. It may not be there at the forefront with all your insights and all your work that you need today, but it's stored and it's archived. Joanna, when you talk about cold storage and life cycles of data, it kind of makes me think that whoever is setting this repository up in the first place should kind of know what they're doing. So I wonder, you know, so, the earlier, the better, right? It doesn't matter how small the team, you want to put those learnings somewhere so that you can use them again and learn from them again. If you are a smaller team or maybe you aren't a librarian or, you know, not sure how to kind of get started, kind of minimum viable repository. What are we talking about? What do you need to have a, a kind of functioning 
useful repository? Uh, a tool is a ideal, tool. whether you decide to make your tool internal or, or you go out and, and you get your tool as a third party. And these are things that, that have their pros and cons and Nada can probably speak to that very well. But a tool is ideal if you know that you can only function on folders for a bit. You still need to come up with some type of structure. So even if you don't have a librarian, although y'all should, <laughs> if you don't have a librarian, you'll, you at least have to have some type of committee of stakeholders that can make these decisions. It, I mean, even as a librarian, I don't operate in a vacuum. What, what I build for people for a living, it's not for me. These things aren't mine. They belong to other people and they're the ones that are going to use it. So even if you don't have a librarian, gather a group like a task force of people that can mm -hmm. work together to make these decisions. What kind of tool are we going to have? What's our next steps? If you can get an engineer on board, that's even like a win right there. Um, having a, a tools PM like, like we had with Nada, that's a win, Nada. Yeah, I'm going to take a different approach here too because I'm going to get very realistic. Not everybody has a budget for a tool. There are companies that are just starting out or teams that are just starting out. And my biggest advice is just try to have all of your recourse centralized in one place and try to, you know, if you can't purchase a tool or if you don't know how to make the decisions about like, hey, what are the actual business requirements or product requirements that are needed? And that's actually the case for a lot of teams and companies right now. What I recommend for you is, hell, just start it out of, uh, Google Sheets, that's fine. Like, just put everything in one place. You know, say it's from this date, it's about this product, this is the, the researcher. And if there's specific keywords that you, you know about or specific methodology that you performed in this research, just call it out. Because what this does is once you do have the ability to hire a librarian or a cataloger or, or even a, a program project manager, they can come in and they can help you, you know, evaluate different tools or different options, whether you want to build this in-house or, or find a vendor that does this really well. And, you know, it would make things a lot easier for them to see that it's all collected in one place and have that conversation with the vendor and say, okay, this is the data. Now let's think about a plan of how do we want to map it out to your site? This is what we have today. And, you know, I may need to do some additional work with organizing. But at least it's in one place. So, so I would say centralize your data as much as you can. Pick one method and stick to it, whether that's going to be, you know, everybody creates their reports in, in docs or in a, in a deck or, you know, in any type of other form. Just pick something and, and stick to it and also let your you know, new hires know about it. So that way, you know, they can follow the same formatting and the, the same process. So we're talking a lot on the repository side, which makes sense. But the other part of this is, you know, insights. I'm actually curious, maybe we should just start there. Like, how would you define like an insight? What's an insight to you? I mean, that could be many things. So, you know, it depends on, on the team and, and how they structure their reporting. So a lot of teams that I've worked with you create research reportings. Uh, so these are final reports that have, you know, the research details, the findings, the recommendation, but there's also times where, where there's different metadata involved, different files like videos or um, PDFs or pictures, you name it. At the end of the day, you know, no matter what type of assets or, or files that 
you have and how you do this type of reporting, you need to think about the final results that you want to share with with your um, partner teams or with your company. So, you know, whether that's a quick one pager or a deck or a document that includes certain images or embedded videos of what your participants mentioned, it's really up to how you want to structure it. Yeah, I think we're talking about, right, like what is the unit of an insight, right? And then I guess to to that point, there's the insights are collected, they get put somewhere, organized, and then extracted and used, I guess, right, by like the end user of, to your point, Joanna, like I'm the librarian, I'm not the, what do you call someone who visits a library visitor? <laughs> and I think that's what people are used to, right? Like, you know, when you write these research reports, at the end of the day, you're sharing them not just with your direct research team, but, you know, you have partners that you work with. You have the product team, the design team, engineering, right? And, and there's so much more. And, and you want to make sure that the way you organize them here matters. You know, you want to make sure that, it, that it's familiar to people and they can locate it easily once you, you know, put it on a specific tool. Yep. Like one of the things that, that I always think about, and I started off my career as a public librarian, and I still think of myself as a public librarian, even though I haven't done that for a very long time, is that the public library, their catalogs are amazing. And they've been working in a really fabulous way for a very long time to catalog and give accessibility to people of all ages to a variety of all subjects, to collections that are in the hundreds of thousands. So what we did, Mata and I, is, is I like to, we like to model our search and discovery, or I, and I like to going forward in every place I work with, on what a public library does. Creating something that is accessible and familiar to people, no matter who your audience is whether it's a public library and it's like a three-year-old kid or a senior citizen or in UX, whether we're talking about the researcher and the creator of an insight or whoever the stakeholders are or the designers or the engineers, can all of these people access and use your repository in a way that, yes, of course, there is going to be some literacy involved that you're going to need to do, but how can you design the system so that literacy is, is a low-level lift for people, that they can just hop in and intuitively know, oh, this is how this is working? Because it's familiar, because hopefully other people have used similar repositories, whether it's their public library or an online journal database. Everything's pretty much the same. So if you follow that model and then couple that with creating a really good information architecture or taxonomy, then it's going to be this really awesome, beautiful, usable thing. Right. And so you're talking about using patterns and organizing systems people are used to, whether it be, I don't know, alphabetical order or tags or folders within folders or some sort of hierarchy, like these kinds of things that might be ways that people are used to organizing information, right? Like not reinventing the organization structures themselves, but starting with a familiar pattern someone's used before and then letting that be a way of organizing these insights? Yeah, for sure. Like, and, and some of these dams, you know, when you purchase them, these repositories, digital asset management systems, 
Some of them will favor folder structures, which is fine. And, and some will favor something where you have to really build a, a good, robust taxonomy and information architecture. But it does help when it's familiar, because even though though you may strive to to bake in information literacy program and trainings, you may not be able to capture all of your audience all the time. So yeah, it, it does help to create some familiar structured. And again, if you're a company or your department or a team that isn't going to hire a librarian or can't hire a librarian right away, don't think too hard about it. Like mm -hmm. don't try to like go nuts and do something entirely off the wall because you have a goal. You want to store your information for the now and the future, and you want to make it accessible for the now and the future. Um, don't, don't get nuts. Yeah. <laughs> do something crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good segue to maybe talk more about tools because I know we have a lot of experience finding, buying, purchasing you know, a, a tool. And, and we were saying at the beginning, get a tool. It's a good place to start because as you were saying, Joanna, like you need – the tool is going to have some opinion, right? Some are going to be more flexible than others, but there's going to be – you're going to be somewhat limited somewhere in terms of how you can build this out. So I imagine you don't want to get too far – down the path of building out, you know, a really robust organiza organizational structure with tagging and metadata and all of this before you've decided on a tool, or maybe you do, correct me if I'm wrong. W when's the best time to kind of start planning out what tool are we going to use? And then all of the organizational decisions we need to make about how we get our insights into that tool. How does that work? How do those things fit together? I would say like the very first thing you need is like identify what your goals are, like what your goals for the team, for the company. And, and that could differ from like one team to another, right? Going back to like familiarity too, you want to think of it like this. If you're a non-researcher or if you're a researcher, it's the same thing. But you, you think of it like this. You go into a website, you want to make sure that there's the ability to search, right? So, so that's a common function. And as you search, and I'll, I'll, you know, give an example here, Macy's, you know, for example, and you're online shopping for a dress, you search for dress. And from there, you want to be able to look into different filters and categories to really nail down the beautiful, most perfect dress for you that you want to purchase. It's really the same idea here. You know, you want to make sure that you pick a tool that can do just that. So for, for me, when I evaluate tools, I have three main things. A place that truly centralizes where our insights live and that a place that researchers or I'll, I'll call them content creators here because it's not just the researcher that's uploading material, but sometimes you have, you know, the librarian or the cataloger or even designers who, who do research. You want to make sure that the tool has those super simple UI where people can just go in and create content, but also it's smart enough that it could tell you that you need to tag a certain way or you need to make sure that you uploaded all your material before you move on and publish it. Another thing that I, I look at is this is going back to content creation versus content discovery is that it's super easy for people to just go into the site or go into to the centralized place and find what they need. That's the idea is for it to be self-serve as much as possible. And the other thing that I really care about that we haven't talked about yet is security, is how secure 
is this space? You know, you want to make sure because you're sometimes you have a lot of sensitive data. PII is mm-hmm. involved and, you know, that's just the nature of research. So as you're thinking about what type of requirements you have for this ideal tool, you have to think about the security functions as well. Mm-hmm. And security functions here is just not where does the data live and how secure it is, but also how um, customizable is that process of security? Meaning if I have specific type of insights that can only be shared with a specific team or specific individuals, you want to make sure that the system has those capabilities of really nailing down and saying, you know, this post can only be viewable by this person or this team versus this post should be, or this, these insights should be viewable by everybody at the company. We want everyone to see what this research is all about. So I would say three things that I care about is centralizing the content and it's an easy way for content creators to upload all of their materials, as well as discovery, like how are we leveraging past research and security is the top three things for me that I look at. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, Go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. You mentioned the content piece a little bit, and I'm curious because I think in a lot of roles, you get insights from all over the place. Like obviously there's the, we usually internally refer to it like as active research. Like we went out and did an active study here to learn something, whether that be, you know, more generative or evaluative or whatever. But, you know, you also get stuff through sales or customer support or whatever, right, with interesting feedback through an interaction or a concern that a prospect had or whatever. Would you think about pulling that kind of stuff in here as well? Or is that separate in your mind? Um, I think it all depends on really the teams and like how centralized research is. You know, there I've worked at companies where research was super centralized and all the research that was done was through, you know, research teams or design teams. I also have been at companies where it's not centralized and there are people at everywhere at the company doing research just because maybe there's no, not enough resources available, not enough headcount for researchers. So I'd recommend you evaluate this as part of your requirements stage and as part of the the draft stage when you're trying to figure out, you know, what's our goal here? Do we want everyone at the company to be able to upload? Um, Or do we want to keep this more standardized and minimal to just the research team? Our focus, specifically like Joanne and I, is the research teams, you know, coming from Facebook or Meta, we had a really big research team who had lots of reports and insights to share. And, you know, they were doing it maybe like differently or they had a centralized place and we just wanted that was our focus that was our goal is to get research the research team's insights all into one place so i would say it it really all depends on on your company and i would definitely think about who your content creators are as you're building out these requirements because it's going to be part of your you know rollout process as well trainings your communications so yeah it's, it's dependent gotcha so 
So we've talked about, you know, generally speaking, any kind of system you're going to use, you want to think about getting the information in easily and centrally, getting it out easily and making sure it's secure. There are a lot of different kinds of tools and solutions that in different scenarios could get you there. How do you think about, you know, one one option you might come across and you mentioned, Nana, that some folks maybe don't have budget to to buy a custom solution. So that might factor in here. But how do you, what's your opinion of, or how do you think about these, you know, you're seeing a lot more emergent, dedicated tools for the purpose of research insight repositories. Then you have other, you know, I think Joanna, you mentioned dams that can be used for all sorts of different kinds of digital assets, whether they be a research or other. Um, and then of course you have Google spreadsheets and, and general purpose tools like that. So how do you go about thinking about what kind of category of, of tool might be a good fit for your needs? I mean, I, I, we're in a much better place right now in 2022 than we were, you know, back in 2018, 19, trying to figure this out because there there have been a lot of tools that have since launched or have made iterations to make this, you know, a more simpler process for, for research teams to consider. But, you know, at the end of the day, whether you are in operations or you're a researcher or research manager and you really want to centralize your insights all into one place, you should really, you know, you have a business case at the end of the day, right? And you should really think about invest in a repository system versus all the other hacks that we have out today, like, you know, spreadsheets, for example, or using folders. But really think about investing, investing early. You know, Joanna mentioned earlier, like hire a librarian first if you can, and <laughs> plus one to that for sure. And that's exactly what I'm going through right now. You know, talking about it with our research leaders here at Dornash, they all agree. You know, they see the value in bringing on a system that already, you know, works and also looking into the opportunity of bringing on a librarian to really help us manage all the insights that go in and go out of it. So I, I, I would definitely recommend that people look at the value that it would bring and, and create that budget for for system a lot of you know a lot of teams might consider building this in-house and that's not a bad idea either what i would caution with in-house is you know you definitely need engineering resources that's a budget that's really hard to get internally and also over time you know especially a lot of research teams don't have direct engineering support and and if you get like another engineering team to do this for you, to do you this favor and build you a quick tool, over time, their priorities might shift. So you don't mm -hmm. want to end up with a tool that's, you know, abandoned over time because you want to make sure that it's a solid foundation and it's maintenanced over time because your needs and your requirements, specifically feature requirements, are going to change with time. When we started this out, even before Joanna joined the, the program, we had many business requirements, we had feature requirements, we had, you know, we developed our user journeys and stories and, you know, we thought we had it all together. And then Joanna came and said, no, we're, we need to ask more. We need to make sure that the system can, you know, do this or that. So, so you're, you know, even though you might have, know what you need and you get someone to build it for you, chances are for sure that your needs will change over time. So even though, right, it might get a little sticker shock at the price of a tool, uh, especially a new category of tool, right? Like we were, we were doing fine without this tool. Why do we need this budget? Why do we need this tool? Might save money in the long run, not actually building it when you factor those things in. And then I imagine the business case, what you're thinking about 
time saved, right? Not trying to waste time hunting down these insights, not having to do the research again when we already maybe know the answer to some of these questions. What are some of the other business cases for if there's skepticism in terms of, you know, getting a tool for this? Yeah, I mean, like you you mentioned the obvious where like ROI is like right there and we can actually like that data or, or those metrics even over time. But also what we're not considering here, and, and I talked a little bit about it, is security, right? Like yeah. you you want to make sure that you invest in something that a tool that it, that provides security and security options as well. So so that in itself is is probably your biggest ROI statement there. So so that those are definitely things to consider and to create your business statement for for an ask like this. And yeah, what what else do you think, Joanne? I'm curious to hear from like an organizational perspective. It's funny. Yeah, you, you totally called it out. That's always the big one is security. When you get into working for for large enterprises or companies that are dealing with sensitive data or sensitive assets that are that leaks could happen. And mm-hmm. I mean, as, as Nada spoke to it to it earlier, there's so many ways that security is going to work for you internally and control what goes out externally. That's probably one of the biggest top priorities as somebody that's been a longtime archivist. You want to make sure your objects, your assets are safe and secure, no matter what they are, no matter if it's research, no matter if it's like some gaming concept, even if it's, you know, million year old dinosaur bone, you need to make sure it's secure. And that's probably like the number one. Is your stuff secure? Is it accessible? I don't I don't know if either of you have examples here or have seen other teams struggle with this, but I'd imagine there's a lot of people or a lot of teams that try to go down this path and either they buy a tool or they set something up themselves and they get it started and then something about it just never clicks. Like, where do you think, like, what mistakes do people make or where does this not end up working out for teams and, like, how can people get ahead of that? Hire a librarian <laughs> or, or, uh, or a committee, right? Like, this is what Joanna talked about early on. Like, you want to make sure that commitment is there and it's part of your goals every quarter, every half, hell, even every week, you know, set reminders for your teams to make sure that the content is is uploaded because that content is created anyways. Like we're all going out to do research, we're getting insights, we're putting reports together. You, you just want to make sure that you stay consistent. It's really important that you, you set those goals ahead of time and you even maybe embed it into your values, right? You know, it's part of your, I'll use it. An example here, as part of your hiring process, you know, and you're hiring researchers on board, this should be something that you're very proud about. Like, hey, we also, you know, have a repository of all of our insights and we do this every week. This is becoming more common and common, you know, as we go through even the interview process. I hear a lot of researchers ask me, hey, what are we doing about past research reports? How are those communicated? Where are they stored today? So it's definitely becoming more of a common thing that people are asking for. So. I would definitely say, like, if, if you choose to invest time or, or money and resources in a tool, you definitely should have a plan for how is that going to be maintenance for the long term, whether it's, you know, the librarian that you hire or the task force that you put together. It's definitely not a set it and forget it tool. This is a program. It's ongoing. There isn't a beginning and end. It's going to go for as long as your team assets company exists. So it's something that does have to be lovingly cared for 
day-to-day basis. You have to have that point person, you know, that's at least someone overseeing it to see are the assets that are being ingested into this repository, is all the metadata filled out? Is everything, are the assets being uploaded? If you just set up a tool and hope that everybody uses it, that's all well and good, (laughs) but you know, the chances that 100% everyone is using it the way they're supposed to be, that's going to take some time. That's going to take some education. And that's like a muscle that's going to have to be exercised to get to that point where everyone is doing it in a way that a librarian, that's just second nature to them. So it is always good to make sure you have that governance over it to make sure that it is being cared for and, and maintained over time. Yeah, sc- scale feels like really important here contextually because I'm imagining, were you the only librarian at Meta, Joanna, or were there a bunch? Or? There, our team, I think we were very unique in that from what I saw and can figure out, we were one of the teams that was doing this idea, this project to this full-fledged beast mode Mm -hmm. capability Mm -hmm. that that we dreamed of there are other people at meta that are taxonomists there's an archivist who's awesome but in terms of doing this particular Mm -hmm. thing in this manner we're definitely i i think as far as i know one of the one of the first people to do this yeah yeah because i'm thinking you know in these different scenarios you know you're a different size organization different size research ops different number of researchers, different number of people who are doing research in the work, right? There's all these different permutations and scales. Just the number of people who are going to do that maintenance and what that looks like can probably vary quite a bit. You know, the key thing is that it's happening, but, you know, any tips on how to make that happen? Is it best to have one dedicated person if in a large scale scenario, do you, can even one full-time person, is that enough? Do you need multiple people? Do you need to then start thinking about democratizing the maintenance of the insights because it's just one one person or a team of people could never do it. Like, what are some ways that might look in terms of how this maintenance, you know, is happening over the long haul? So having like a, a large team is great and it's wonderful because you want to collect all those insights. But having one person govern, you know, a very large team of individuals adding assets to a repository can become very daunting and almost to the point of it's just not scalable. So you may want to have point people within teams within a large org that you have open communication with, that these people are using the system for their team to make sure their smaller team is all using the system. They are all adding the correct metadata. They are monitoring the terms that are being used. And if they identify new terms or taxonomy terms, then they can push that upstream to the administrators of the tool, whether that's a librarian or PM or just whoever's assigned to govern the entire tool and say, hey, we're seeing these changes happen. Can we talk about them and kind of flush them out and add them to the system? And in that way, now you're putting the weight off that one person that that may like not have the time to manage something where you have insights coming in, you know, 100 insights a week, which is just not doable, more than 100 insights a week. 
which have a lot of content to read through. And right. unless you're doing the work yourself, you're not quite sure, you know, what is this about? What is the subject matter? It's going to take a long time for somebody to comb through that. So it is good to have sort of warriors and point people, the stakeholders that you can communicate with in all of your smaller teams, if you have a large team that you're dealing with. So yeah, this is all making sense. You talked about, you know, this is something that has to be very habitual in terms of how you cultivate it and get it started. As you scale, you got to figure out the right kind of hierarchy to, to keep up with all the insights that are coming in. I guess I'm curious, you do all this work. How do you all think of like success here in terms of, you know, it, is it just like people are going in there and you see people doing the search and discovery to look for old insights and that's a signal that it's valuable or is it Maybe it's not used all that frequently, but when it is used, it's super helpful. And so that, you know, that made it all worth it. Or yeah, I'm just curious how you think about like you, when you see it click for the organization and you're getting value from it, like how do you, what are some signals that that's happening? I think there are different ways to measure success. The one great way to do this through a tool is, you know, you look into the system metrics and you can see your daily or monthly users and you can maybe even break it down a step further to downloads or interactions, right? Like, so that's the one way that could tell you, okay, over time, and as our company or our teams are growing, we, we also see growth in, in the visitors. But also I, I think, it, and, and Joanna, you can talk about this too, but like the more self-serve it becomes, the the more that they're not relying on like pings and saying like who has anybody done research on this or that and and the more that you see your product teams or your design or engineering teams finding the content on their own that's when you know you've you've been successful and another way to think about measuring this and maybe this is more for like research leadership is you know as part of research planning you know we can start to think about past research that we've referenced or that we could leverage for this project and, and talk about it in your one-on-ones or talk about it as part of your quarterly or, or half plannings as you go. I think, you know, it, once you start to see that, you know, naturally happening, that's when you know that this tool or this program has been successful. Yeah, that's great. I wanted to just close with talking a little bit more about taxonomy because I know we've talked about taxonomy this whole time in a sort of passing, but we've got a librarian here. So I really want to geek out for a minute. You know, when we think about taxonomy, of course, has to do with organizing information, naming information. So we've got insights. There are different formats we've talked about. You know, maybe you have decks or docs or, you know, whatever the format of all these insights is, we're going to organize it into some kind of taxonomy. I imagine this can be daunting, particularly for folks who are maybe not librarians or, you know, don't have that depth of experience. At the same time, we're talking about researchers who, you know, IA is certainly part of UX research work. So maybe we have a actually a really good <laughs> group of folks to work with when we think about building out a good taxonomy. But yeah, what are some like kind of rookie things, rookie mistakes people make or on the other side, some ways to get off started with, of course, you can make your taxonomy more robust over time, but get it started in a, a good place. Any top tips there on on a kind of starter taxonomy for your insights repository? Top tips is such a good question. And I think it's good to note that you can create a system and you can put your stuff in it. And cool, I did that. But it's not going to be wonderfully accessible unless you really focus on the information architecture, that taxonomy, because that's where the value is going to come from. That's what's going to make your search and discovery super strong. So even if you don't have a tool, 
this can be built out beforehand. It, you can build out a, a metadata model in a Google Sheet. Rookie mistake. <laughs> Free tagging. Free tagging mm -hmm. sounds like a grand idea. We do it all the time when we use Instagram. Seems great, but it's actually not that good. You know, it, it opens up a, a field or a, a data set to allow users to add any tag they want to any asset. Any stop that, cut that out. <laughs> oh, yeah. That. Um, and then you get, you probably get like 17 versions of almost the same thing too, right? Yeah. So it, it allows, yeah. So what free tagging does sounds like it's a great idea because first thought, oh, it's a great way to have everybody add all their assets at, at once, add all your tags, cool, it's findable. We're human, we create errors. A lot of misspellings happen, whether we just don't know how to spell something, but through fast typing, I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. How many times have we misspelled something by accident and that Google spelling correction is, is fixing it for us? These systems may not have that. So opening it up to free tagging is going to have a lot of misspellings. You're also going to get, here's a common thing in UXR, everyone's going to want to tag their research as UXR. Or <laughs> right, right, right. Well, what do you go to search? Yeah, yeah didn't. You know, yeah. 100% of your assets. That's not a great search. So you really want to, and what I, I always try to encourage people to do is create a controlled vocabulary some type of rigid hierarchy of categories that's been researched, discussed, and agreed upon by a governance group. Not just your librarian, but a team of people that can be the voice for the larger team to say, this is what we're going to call this thing. And then also have that communication for new concepts, new products. If you're a company that deals um, in many IPs and products, knowing what's being built, when those names or language changes over time, having that open communication when you're maintaining a taxonomy. Staying away from acronyms. Acronyms are probably the hardest thing for, for new people trying to learn and understand the language of a company or institution that they're working for. Imagine them going into a repository. They're tasked with finding out, learn what we've done on this particular subject. And there's just a host of acronyms that are used in a variety of ways across a whole company. That's going to get really confusing. So stay away from acronyms, stay away from jargon. You're going to have a lot of people coming in from different backgrounds and other different companies or institutions. They're all going to be speaking about things in a variety of ways that mean the same thing, that's where your governance team can really take that variety or similarity-like terms and narrow down and zoom in on one term. And if you have a really awesome tool, you can take all those other terms that are like or similar and point them to the preferred term so that even if you get someone that searches the word cat, maybe your preferred term is feline, everything is going to surface at once. So yeah, stay away from free tagging, create a controlled vocabulary. It's going to make your search and discovery so much better for the long term. And, and I think one other thing that Joanna, you and I talk a lot about is, you know, especially if you are in product, a lot of product names or features might change over time, or you might have like a secret word for it until it launches. Stay away from those two. <laughs> 
<laughs> try to keep it maybe more focused on the keywords that you do know about for sure mm -hmm. versus what you think people know about. So yeah, definitely plus one to everything Joanna said. Amazing. Well, it's clear we could talk for hours about repositories, just a wealth of information. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. Any parting thoughts for folks on repositories that we didn't get to cover? I, I would, you know, just reiterate like the importance of them everywhere you go, regardless of the team size that you have. Uh, start with just centralizing the content, put them all into one place and get in the habit of doing this every time you have collected insight or, or feedback. And you always are going to have a business case, regardless of the company that you're in or, or the team that you're on. There is always a case to have this valuable data in one place that you can share and, and have others discover it easily. And, you know, I'm a librarian, so I'm going to sing the praises of preserving and curating your content for, you know, for, for as long as I exist on this earth. So, yeah, plus one million to organizing your content in a way that anybody can access it and discover it, even if you don't have a tool. Making sure that literacy is baked into your system that people know the, the workflow that you're using whether you have a tool or not. And if you have a tool, hire a librarian. <laughs> good tool, good librarian, good taxonomy, and just do it, get it centralized. Makes for happy researchers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.